0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we find out why Canada should be doing more to protect women in Afghanistan, as the Taliban regime there continues a relentless attack on their rights. Renowned war studies expert Sir Lawrence Friedman joins us from London to talk about the impact of Russia's blockade of Ukraine's ports and how it could become a flashpoint in this war. We hear from the former Chief Operating Officer of Air Canada, but what should be done to try to cut down those huge lines we're seeing at many Canadian airports these days? But first, Canada has now confirmed five cases of monkeypox, and public health officials admit they don't yet know just how many more may be out there. Let's get right to it tonight because we're going to talk about monkeypox again. Uh, We spoke about it last night, but five cases now, three more confirmed today by the Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, bringing again the total to five. The first ever cases of this rare infectious disease recorded in this country, all believed to be in the Montreal area. Uh, But Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, was out today talking about this, says a couple of dozen possible cases in Quebec are being investigated, and it still isn't clear just how widespread it might be.
1: I think at the beginning of any outbreak, we should cast the net Y to try and understand the transmission routes. We don't understand it enough. There's probably been some hidden chains of transmission that could have occurred for quite a a number of weeks, uh, given the sort of global uh, situation that we're seeing right now. So we shouldn't rule out um, new things that we might learn um, as as we go along. Uh, This is an unusual situation.
0: Unusual to say the least. First discovered in 1958, monkeypox is caused by a virus that belongs to the same family as the one that causes smallpox. It's not very contagious in a typical social setting and risk is low, but nearly everyone in this country is susceptible because routine vaccination against smallpox ended decades ago. Deputy Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Howard New uh, says monkeypox is relatively more mild, but health authorities are taking it seriously. In terms of you know vaccination campaigns, I think in Canada it stopped in the early '70s, and so I would say generally that the entire population uh, is, is susceptible to this uh, to, to monkeypox. Joining me now is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, an infectious disease specialist based out of Toronto's General Hospital. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight.
2: My pleasure. Happy to chat. Uh,
0: this this feels like it couldn't come at a worse time. But uh, what are we dealing with?
2: Well. You know, this is uh, certainly uh, an outbreak of uh, a virus. We don't really see much of this virus outside of Central or Western Africa. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's occasional uh, case of this gets exported. And, you know, there have been known cases to pop up in uh, the UK or in the United States from uh, travelers to to that region. And, you know, it looks like we're having a bit of a larger outbreak now. There's been cases detected in multiple countries on multiple continents. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to grumble along for a while. I think we're going to see more cases before uh, this starts to get better, because uh, it, it does take some time to identify the cases and ensure that there's appropriate contact tracing that's conducted. So I think we're going to see, unfortunately, more of this for the next little bit.
0: Um, I gather this is excessively rare, though, outside of, outside of, uh, of Africa. And also, uh, very few of these cases seem to have any direct link back there. Uh, what, what Does that make it all the more challenging?
2: Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, you know, there there likely are ongoing that uh, were acquired, you know, locally, for example, here in Canada or locally in the United Kingdom, and and they didn't have any uh, contact with a, a traveler directly, and you know, this this just makes it harder. It just means that there's more community spread. Of, uh, of this infection and it just takes time to identify those cases and ensure that people get the proper care and are informed about isolation and not not infecting other people so yeah that's that's the that's the issue unfortunately is that it it will grumble along for a while until uh until this gets under control unfortunately
0: uh, what does it do what, what are the symptoms
2: yeah it's, i mean it's a viral infection the i mean the closest relative is smallpox but it's certainly on the milder end and not not really uh um as nearly as severe as smallpox was remember smallpox is eradicated from uh from the planet thank god uh so basically people the typical presentation is someone might be exposed to this virus and there's about a two-week incubation period sometimes a little bit longer sometimes a little bit shorter and and you know, people will typically present with a fever a headache uh some swollen lymph nodes and then uh uh Characteristic rash will appear. You know, the closest thing people might recognize is um, the chickenpox. This is not the chickenpox, but the rash can can sometimes re- resemble that of the chickenpox. You remember when if people old enough who had the chickenpox, they might remember that the this the chickenpox rash sort of popped up one little pox at a time, and and then resolved uh, a bit by bit. Typically with uh, monkeypox, the classic uh, description is that the skin lesions tend to appear uh, simultaneously and they're roughly the same age. And then we'll start to resolve roughly at the same time as well. Luckily, most people have uh, an infection that's on the milder end of the spectrum, but you know what? It has been known to cause more significant illness as well. It's just that that would be an uncommon presentation.
0: It must be challenging though, for, for anyone in your field to deal with something that you really haven't seen before.
2: Yeah. I mean, it certainly, but this, that that's that's a good point, uh, but again, like many of us in infectious diseases have uh, studied and focus on travel and tropical medicine. So you know it's fair to say let's let's just be totally honest. Like this is an infection of Central and West Africa. Uh, there's a a category of infections. They're they're literally called neglected tropical diseases, and they're called that for a reason. It's because they're not uh they they really impact uh, tropical countries typically lower income countries there's just not a lot of research or attention paid toward these uh, uh, because they don't impact high income places and uh and you know it's not that there's nothing known about these but there's not nearly enough known about these although this infection has been known to exist since the 1950s and there certainly are uh, studies and research on it, just not not as significant. So, you know, we certainly uh, will learn a lot about this infection from this outbreak. But uh, it's not like we're starting from scratch, like with COVID-19.
0: I understand that smallpox vaccine is one one potential way of at least treating healthcare workers or treating some people who need to be treated. But that's very hard to come by now
2: oh yeah i mean you can't you can't go down to your local shoppers and ask for a smallpox vaccine i don't think they'll have it in stock but but yeah there are stockpiles of uh uh smallpox vaccines there absolutely are and um you know for example in the united kingdom they're doing what's called a ring vaccine strategy where if they do find an infected uh individual they'll look for all the close contacts of that individual and they will vaccinate them, and I think that's a really smart approach. I mean, this is how you can quell these uh, these outbreaks quicker. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the smallpox vaccine is the same vaccine for monkeypox. It, it does provide cross protection. And there's people of a certain age listening who probably received a smallpox vaccine. The vaccine programs globally stopped around the 1970s, in some places in the 80s, and it's you know the, that vaccine effectiveness might have waned with time, but it is still thought to provide some protection.
0: How concerned should the general public be right now? Because of course, something like monkeypox, we're coming, you know, we're still dealing with COVID. A lot of people are on high alert about infectious disease. How concerned should the general public be about about this?
2: You know, I would never want to sweep anything under the rug and say it's nothing. Certainly, I think we should at least raise an eyebrow and, and take this seriously. Uh, you know, fortunately, everything we know about this infection and we don't know everything, but everything we know about this infection is that it, it does cause a milder end of uh, the spectrum of illness. It's vaccine. Uh, the vaccine is, is effective. Um, uh, you know, there have been outbreaks of this, uh, in, in West and Central African countries. And, you know, it hasn't, for example, uh, exploded all over the world. It like, uh, like a uh, COVID-19 did. And again, that's not to say it's going to be a nothing event. I think we, we've got to take it seriously. And we've got to find those cases. And we've got to educate the public. And we've got to provide support for infected people. And we've got to provide uh, prevention for those who might have been exposed. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it, it is going to grumble along. Again, no one has a crystal ball, but I, I don't think this is going to be, you know, COVID part two.
0: We certainly, though, I imagine, anticipate that there are many cases out there that we don't know about, because it appears to, be, it appears to have circulated already, I, I suspect.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, there, we're going to hear more uh, about more cases, for sure, uh, over the next few days and weeks, and it's probably going to take a bit of time before uh, this starts to tail off.
0: Dr. Bogash, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Have a great day.
0: I don't know if you've been reading up on Afghanistan of late, but the past few weeks have seen even more attacks on women's rights in that country by the Taliban regime. On May 7th, the government issued the so-called burqa edict, forcing all women to completely cover up in public. Um, And this week they extended that edict to women on TV, such as newscasts, just to drive it home a little further. It is the latest in what has been really a relentless effort by the Taliban since they came back into power uh, last summer to scale back any freedoms enjoyed by women in the time before the fall of Kabul. And despite promises from the regime at the outset that this would not be a return to the Taliban of old, it wouldn't be the return to the Taliban of Mullah Omar and 9 11 and the late 90s, early 2000s, um, it appears for all eyes to see at least that women are quickly being forced back into the shadows, back into invisibility in Afghanistan. And that despite the fact, I mean, let's be honest, Canada fought over there. One of the reasons we were there, one of the reasons we talked about being there was to allow women and girls to be educated and to make sure they had futures. And these are the same women now, that generation, that are being shoved back into the shadows by the Taliban. Now, Canada's reacted with some harsh words uh, about all this, saying that we are deeply concerned about escalating restrictions on women uh, by the Taliban, including this burqa rule, uh, asking that human rights for women and girls be respected. But again, words that the Taliban aren't really ones for listening to uh, critiques from abroad. Uh, my next guest, though, says the women of Afghanistan and their daughters deserve more and that Canada isn't living up to its 2017 commitments laid out under the so-called feminist international assistance policy. Joining me now from Toronto is Zara Nader. She's an Afghan Canadian journalist and a contributing reporter to the Fuller Project. She's also a PhD student at York University. Zara, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me here, Ben.
0: Um I know we've seen a rapid deterioration, call it a full-on attack on women's rights in Afghanistan since the Taliban took over again. How would you describe what's happened though for those who haven't been paying close attention?
1: So let me start maybe from August. Um, I'm living in Toronto, so I was watching closely everything uh, as it was unfolding in Afghanistan. And actually, there was a lot of hope and people would like to call them Taliban O2 because Mm -hmm. they felt that this Taliban is changed and when they were in Qatar Mm -hmm. for the peace talk, and they continued to say that we do respect women's rights and that we will allow women to get education, to return to work. But unfortunately, what happened, well, uh, what um, I'm personally like reporting on is that that claims was never true. And that was something that Afghan women from the very beginning was saying that please don't trust the Taliban. And what, they are not truthful to what they, they say, to what they claim. And let them, uh, you know, just make sure there's guarantee for what they are saying, for what they're claiming. But uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, So everything happened very fast. In their second week in power, uh, the Taliban ordered all women in Afghanistan to, almost all women to um, not come to work, stay at home because our fighters are not trained to respect you. And that was, that was the excuse. Um, It was very interesting to just say, oh, you know, we are not ready to respect you. So you have to stay at home and gradually uh, in September, they announced that all boys can return to school, but uh, not girls uh, from grade 6 to 12. So from uh, primary school is allowed for girls, but not from grade one, uh, grade 6 to 12 are not allowed. They have to uh, remain at home until we prepare a sort of framework. Again, um, this was the claim initially the first time they took power in Afghanistan in 1996? Uh, they said the same thing that you know we allow women to work in education, but you know we need a framework. We need the the, the you know we need to create a condition for it. Right. But we know that that never happened, and, and it's been repeated again. And if you allow me, I can go on to say that in December they they literally ban all women from traveling. Um, from traveling even inside the country and outside the country without having a male chepron. Mm-hmm. And that is in a country that has one of the highest number of widow women, the, the women who do not have a male chepron immediately to accompany them outside the home. And I personally reported that how this decrease and how disorders orders are preventing women even from getting healthcare.
0: And, and then recently, of course we've seen others, uh, the, there's a new Burqa rule, a covering rule that's come in. It's really felt like the Taliban have gone about once again trying to, to make women in Afghanistan disappear from both the economy and, and society at large.
1: Yes, yes. Unfortunately, that decree just was announced on May 7 and they said all women have to cover their face. And it would be it would be good for them. It's the best sign up observing their rule is to stay at home. And um, one of the very very cynical twists to this decree was that women themselves will not be punished, but their male chepron or their male uh, mahram or guardian mm-hmm. will be the one that punished. So basically, it stripped women of the very. Uh, autonomy to even resist this order to just say that to push back and say we're not going to accept this so basically they said okay from now on if you're not going to observe our dress code which is a face covering and they said the best form would be burqa and mm-hmm. um, if you're not covering your face your male chebron uh, or your male guardian will be punished basically they're making um, and we have the highest rate of uh, domestic violence in Afghanistan and the statistic shows that From 10 women, nine of them experienced one form of uh, domestic violence. And this degree definitely going to systematically um, make that domestic violence a systematic violence for women in Afghanistan.
0: Just the impact on the country itself, because we know from the many, many years of violence, obviously, as you mentioned, a huge number of widows, they're the heads of their families. We're in the middle of a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. What is the impact to the country when you remove women from every facet of the economy and their ability to make a living.
1: Unfortunately, you know the numbers that they're saying. um, It's the statistic provided by... Human Human Rights Watch by uh, the UN and different organizations, they are saying that 98% of uh, people in Afghanistan can't afford to eat and and, uh, more than half of the population are starving and a huge number, more than half of that number is actually women and girls in Afghanistan. And women in Afghanistan, women and girls are bearing the brunt of this uh, economic crisis more than anybody else For example, when the family are pushed into starvation, this is the the daughter. They need to force their daughter into marriage and at early age, and they have to take measures. And this is the you know women are facing the the most horrible of. What is happening from this economy, from the pressure that the Taliban are pushing and uh, implementing on women's bodies, women's life every single day. I forgot to mention that very today, as we speak, mm-hmm. the Taliban announced a new decree. It sends a statement to all the media, the television channels, asking them that their female you know, anchors must cover their faces when they're on screen. Um, and it is also interesting to say that they really compared with COVID and said, you know, during the COVID, people were asked to wear a mask. So we are doing the same thing to women in Afghanistan and they mask cover their face. And initially, so, yeah. they asked them to wear black. So the, that your hijab is either to have a burqa or a black niqab that to totally cover you, that make you invisible in this country, that even if you go out, Nobody really knows who you are, who you have been, what is your social position, who. So basically this woman and I'm like, I'm talking to them every day and I really feel what they know. Some of them, they tell me, you know, I have worked so hard to take the position I am to be a leader, to work in this country, to contribute to my society. But now I'm being told that I have to stay home, that I can't continue working because I am a woman. And that is and, and there's no hope for me. Said so if how can I encourage my daughter to go to university when there's nothing after university, when you know you can't work, you can participate in society and live as a social, you know, as a social being.
0: I'm speaking with Zara Nader. She's an Afghan-Canadian journalist uh, and contributing reporter to the Fuller Project. We're talking about uh, the fact that a Taliban 2.0, as some may have hoped back last year in August, has not happened when it comes to women's rights. In fact, if anything, we've seen a full-on attack on on the ability of women to take part in Afghan society since the Taliban uh, resumed power. After this, we'll talk a bit more about what can be done. What should Canada be doing uh, to try and at least uh, put pressure on the Taliban to change course? That's next. I'm speaking with Zara Nader. She's an Afghan Canadian journalist based uh, in Toronto, contributing reporter to the Fuller Project, and a PhD student at New York University. We've been talking about the full-on attack uh, on women's rights in Afghanistan since uh, the Taliban took took back power uh, last year, including recently a full-on burqa ban, but many other things that are far more detrimental as well uh, to simply clothing in terms of their ability to work, to make a living, to feed families, freedom. Uh, Zara, one of the things that always strikes me is that for 20 years or not, you know, not, not always, but women had an ability to take part in Afghan society, you know, not under the Taliban. How, how has the Taliban tried to Why would they try to put, so put those freedoms back in a bottle, so to speak?
1: So the Taliban are very an ideological uh, group and they are fundamentally very, um, extreme in their interpretation of Islam and so what they are trying trying to do trying to show that they are bringing a pure Islam and the way they are doing is they want to kind of erase all women from society and show that this is how we are interpreting and they are imposing that on the an estimated 40 million people in Afghanistan which half of that would be like 20 million women
0: you know, when I was in Afghanistan and we spent so much time talking about women's education, about, uh, you know, how NATO forces there were trying to open up spaces in places like Kandahar so that girls could study. I went to girls' schools where obviously, you know, people there were just excited to learn. Um, what should Canada be doing now? What should countries like Canada be doing now to try to put more pressure on the Taliban to, re- to change
2: course?
1: Thank you for this question, because it's very, very important canada um, as a country that claimed to have a feminist foreign policy not only have responsibility for having for having this feminist foreign policy but because canada has been involved in afghanistan since 2001 and they came with this claim that what they told to the public in canada was that we are doing this for women's rights. we are helping women in afghanistan we are lifting up we are emancipating them we are empowering them in afghanistan and suddenly we are just seeing that all those years, just women are back in, in, in what they have been, you know, they are cut from education. They can't go to school. They can't go to work. And they're being ordered to wear a burka, cover their faces when they are in public and remain at home. And so my question would be why Canada is silent, why Canada is not saying much except expressing concern, which is like many countries that's doing that. But what I'm talking to women when I'm just telling them, you know, I'm asking them, how do you feel? And they're saying, you know, all these countries, uh, they're saying we are concerned, but the point is that your concern is not really doing anything. It's not um, making the Taliban change their mind or reverse the policies, the misogynistic policies that they are implementing day by day, making it intense, making it you know, more in, intense in the nature and the way that they're implementing it. And uh, just expressing concern is not really, really helping us. And I think what Canada can do right now is to take a lead as a country that has a feminist foreign policy, let come and define what this feminist foreign policy mean when it came to women's rights. And we have seen that I think no other countries uh, might have been at this position that we are seeing at the crisis, at women's rights crisis right now in Afghanistan. We are not seeing it in any other places in the world. We are not. So Afghanistan is the only country that banned women from education, and we are not seeing it anywhere else. And what Canada is doing to really show that it is, it has a feminist foreign policy one of the biggest...
0: Right. I was going to say, how do you put pressure on a regime like the Taliban that seems so impervious or seems so willing to ignore what anyone else has to say about how they do things?
1: I think as far as the Taliban need international recognition, need the financial support, there's always a leverage to make them, you know, at least reverse some of these policies. Uh, but, but the way i see it is that it is putting a priority you know making afghan women a priority for a country that has a feminist foreign policy and the way that they can do is it pressure it not only through expressing concern but also through diplomatic channel even though i'm not a diplomat but i can see that there is obvious ways that canada can put pressure canada put, could put sanction on the Taliban leaders and ask them that they would not be allowed to travel outside Afghanistan and make sure to kind of pressure on the countries that are legitimizing the Taliban, that are negotiating on behalf of the Taliban to make sure that as long as the Taliban are not willing to accommodate to um, the, the rights of women, the rights of girls in Afghanistan, we are not willing to take any step toward recognizing them, toward giving them support, or toward um, you know having them to travel um, outside the country. This is one way Canada can do. And one of the other ways, which is very important, is to help and support uh, women of Afghanistan by putting them at uh, the p- priority list of entering to Canada as a refugee, because we know that women in Afghanistan, they can't work. And the women who were visible, who were part of the society, who were leading um, the society toward the more egalitarian society is now themselves at risk. They are either in the country hiding or somewhere um, outside the country living in limbo and trying to find a way to to continue their life, uh, somewhere which is safer for them. Zara, I only happening?
0: have about a minute left. Um, but are you optimistic that this is going to get any get any better? Before is it going to get worse before it gets better? Do you think?
1: <sighs> I am with the Taliban in power. I have no hope. I have zero hope uh, that the Taliban might change. But I have hope that if the countries like Canada and like-minded other countries that have foreign policy, like Sweden, like Germany, and like Mexico, if they come together. And find a collective way to pressure the Taliban. I am sure that would help. And find other ways to support women and women organizations in the country who are resisting, who are trying to push back, and to just find a way to live as a human being. And they are fighting for their rights.
0: Zara Nader, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, Ben.
2: Well,
0: let's head to talk about Ukraine now, at least, because the impact of the war, as we well know, continues to be felt around the world. That is particularly true in countries that suffer from food insecurity. And it's true of food prices just about everywhere. But Ukraine, as we've talked about, is a major exporter of things such as wheat and sunflower oil or sunflower to the world. But much of what they export is now trapped. Uh, Either they can't get it out of the country or they're having trouble moving it by train because Russia – has imposed essentially a naval blockade. They can't access the sea, uh, the Black Sea, to be able to ship this stuff around the world from Ukraine. Uh, it's also obviously doing very deep damage to the Ukrainian economy in general. Well, this week, our foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie was at the UN in New York for discussions on food security, and the issue of Ukraine was top of the agenda. Uh, she did announce that Canada will be sending cargo ships to ports in Romania, which is sort of a neighbour, um, that has access to the Black Sea, and other European countries neighboring Ukraine to help it export its wheat, what Jolie described as, in her speech as freedom wheat. Of course, the issue of the blockade itself is intrinsically tied to the overall overall war. Um, Russia hasn't seen many successes, although we were talking a lot about Mariupol today. Um, and the issue is being looked at in a recent article called Breaking the Black Sea Blockade by Sir Lawrence Friedman. He's an emeritus professor of war studies at King's College in London, England, the author of several books on war and strategic studies, including the upcoming Command, the politics of military operations from Korea to Ukraine. He's also often referred to as the Dean of British Strategic Studies. And Sir Lawrence Friedman joins me from London. Thank you so much for being here. Good to talk to you. Um, The Ukrainian military said this week that they see us entering what would be called a protracted phase uh, of this war. Uh, What's your sense of how this fight will unfold in the coming months?
3: Well, it's it's difficult enough working out how it will unfold in the coming days. I I think what one can see at the moment is a very concerted uh, Russian push, Mm -hmm. really to sort of clear up Luhansk as much as it can, Mm -hmm. um, which they're concentrating a lot of effort. um, And it's had some limited but not trivial success. Um, But the question is, A, A, whether that can be sustained and B, whether it can link up with moves elsewhere. Uh, And the general sense is, I think, that the Russians are still taking a lot of attrition and finding it hard to fully exploit even gains when they make them. Uh, They're very hampered by uh, the problems they've had with, with, with manpower. Uh, which is both numbers and, uh, and morale. Um, the Ukrainians uh, are, have made some progress themselves, pushing Russians out from uh, around Kharkiv, nibbling away around Kherson. Um, but I don't think that the Ukrainians um, uh, expect this current stage to be more than largely defensive while they prepare their forces for, what is anticipated to be a more serious offensive. Um, and first, it's, it's a hard slog for the Ukrainians as well. I mean, mm-hmm. the, they don't talk about their casualties, um, and they're not as severe as those of the Russians, but they're severe enough. So it's a hard slog. Um, it's tough fighting. But I think their assumption is that as more Western equipment comes in and as they get used to it and uh, feel uh, properly trained on it, Um, it will have a a, a more more and more substantial impact on the battle. I think the the Russians probably share that assessment, which is why they're trying to get what they can as soon as they can. So uh, I think we've got a a period of some quite tough fighting with not necessarily a lot of movement. Um, But then I think uh, Ukrainian strength should begin to tell, um, and the russians will will be fighting much more of a difficult defensive battle. We haven't yet seen the the ukrainians um on a, a sort of a more classical offensive. We've seen them do very well uh mm-hmm. sort of turning the tactics they've used to defense to offense just moving sort of almost village by village against uh, against the russians. But if you're trying to Know, move significant distances in, in a day then you've got to be prepared to go out in the open a bit more uh, and that becomes more challenging so we'll see i i i I'm, i i think the the ukrainians are being very cautious properly with their assessment and it may well take another uh, couple of months before we've got a clear idea of, about how that side is likely to end up
0: as a long-time student a long-time expert on war uh I think in the lead up to this, you called the build-up unusual. It seems like how the the war itself has unfolded over the three months or nearly three months now has been full of surprises. What have you found to be the most um, the most surprising aspect of this fight so far?
3: I think people assumed um, that the Russians knew what they were doing. Um, now it, it was always clear that, and uh, it was clear before the war that Putin had a, I've, I've called it a delusional view of Ukraine, that, that it wasn't a proper country, lacked a national identity, um, wasn't likely to fight, um, and that shaped the original war plans. But you would have thought there would be a, been enough cautious voices in the Russian military and in Moscow to at least ask questions about what happens if uh, they don't crumble? What happens if they have sorted out their defences? So they really got themselves off on the wrong foot to start, with, they have never really recovered. They've uh, struggled from day one with um, uh, w- with uh, Ukrainian tactics, with the, the defensive tactics, with uh, logistics problems, um, with morale problems, command problems, Uh And I think they all they all stem from from the uh, original uh, misassessment of of Ukrainian strength. I suppose the other surprise, which is part of that, is just the lack of impact of air power Um, in the wars that um, sort of the West has fought. Air power air power has loomed very large, and we know it can only take you so far when you get into uh, uh, insurgencies and so on. But air power has Made a tremendous difference. And the Russians used air power you know, quite effectively in Syria. Uh, so the limited impact of air power has been surprising. And I think that's partly due to um, uh, the, the, the limited ordnance they've got, partly due to the fact that they had too easy a ride maybe in Syria and therefore weren't prepared for. Uh, a more serious defensive operation, and partly because the um, Ukrainians have had some decent uh, air defences uh, of their own and also maintained uh, their own air force, uh, which is small, but, uh, but has been operational. So I think the the uh, lack of importance of the air power dimension is relevant, but it hasn't been decisive, not say as much as artillery. I suppose the other thing is There was an expectation here, I I would say I was always more cautious about the role of cyber attacks and information campaigns and so on as being part of the Russian armory. Uh, And they've all been tried and some quite significant cyber attacks, but by and large, they haven't made much difference to to the course of the conflict. In fact, if anything, uh, the Russians have come off worse Certainly, on the information campaigns. Zelensky is much better at it than Putin.
0: Speaking with Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus, Professor of War Studies at King's College, London., uh, we're talking about the war so far. We're almost ninety days in uh, to this war in Ukraine, and some of the surprises. Uh, certainly uh, lack of, uh, Russia's lack of success has been surprising on the ground. One aspect we haven't talked about much. It did come up, up about the UN this week uh, in the context of food security, is just the effectiveness of Russia's sea blockade, of uh, the blockade of Ukrainian ports, and how that's impacted both Ukraine's economy in general and Ukraine's ability. Uh, to export much-needed grain to other parts of the world. And we'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking with Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London and author of several books on war and strategic studies, including the upcoming Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. He's speaking to me tonight uh, from London. We've been discussing the the lack of progress or the progress or lack thereof so far for Russia in this war, uh, what may lie ahead in the coming days and weeks. Um, uh, Sir Lawrence, what area that you've looked at and spoken about and you thought was perhaps not being discussed enough uh, was the naval blockade, the way that Russia has basically shut off uh, Ukraine's access uh, to the sea. Uh, how effective has that been and, and, and how important has it been in this conflict?
3: Uh, well, it is important. Uh, I think quite a lot of people are talking about it uh, this week, uh, and uh, partly because uh, it hurts Ukraine's economy, and that's obviously what Russia is intending to achieve. But it's having dire effects on, on the international economy, on, on basically on food prices, uh, and could create a much more general humanitarian crisis which is why there's a lot of interest in how you get all the um, agricultural produce uh, in storage in uh, in ukraine particularly close to odessa out because that normally goes by sea uh, uh, and these are really substantial uh, amounts and if you don't move them um, then you've got a problem with the next harvest because uh, you've got nowhere to store. So the, the, there are very big issues here. Uh, and uh, the EU and, uh, and the UN uh, have been looking at these. The question is, do you need uh, some sort of military naval operation to uh, provide some sort of convoy?
0: The,
3: there's enough, there's two sorts of problems. One, whether or not the Russians would fire on ships trying to escort um uh, uh, merchant vessels in and out of, of Odessa. Odessa would be the main port involved here. Uh, whether you, or, or, and also uh, the role of mines, some, some of which undoubtedly been laid by the Ukrainians to stop a, a, a Russian amphibious landing. Uh, and the mines are a really big problem. One ship has already been struck by a mine uh, with a couple of casualties. And um, so I, I think you would need quite a serious naval operation. It wouldn't have to be branded as, as NATO, it could be branded as UN or just an ad hoc coalition. But I think there's going to be increasing pressure for something like this, um, just simply because the current situation uh, carries all sorts of dangers, not only for Ukraine, um, but for the rest of the world. And the Russians are being a bit equivocal on, um, on all of this, as uh, in terms of what steps they would take. To, to stop it, they, they say it has to be linked to economic sanctions against Russia. Uh, and that's obviously something that NATO will not want to, or the EU will not want to ease. So I think there's going to be quite a bit of diplomacy around this um, uh, over the next week or so, But but the pressure is certainly building up to act.
0: I know from the outside, really, we've seen the high profile incidents, the sinking of the Moskva for instance, uh, the, there was the sinking of another major uh, Ukrainian ship or Ukrainian vessel at the very beginning, the Slovyansk, and then there was another Russian vessel that was sunk as well. And these seem to be the times that we pay specific attention to what's going on at sea, as well as sort of the attacks from uh, from the Azov Sea and from the Black Sea on Ukraine. But how successful has Russia been in this blockade and, and how power, how powerful is their navy and its ability to uh, defend uh, that area?
3: Well, it's obviously in a very strong position uh, vis-a-vis the Ukrainian navy, which is tiny. Um, now, the Ukrainians have uh, fought back as, in ways you've indicated, especially sinking mm-hmm. of the Moskva, which has caused the Russians' problem because it was playing quite a large air defence role, not just over the sea, but over the land as well. So that was a, a big loss to Russia as well as being humiliating. Um and the Ukrainians are now getting some pretty significant anti-ship capabilities. So they could go a bit on the offensive uh, in the Black Sea if if they wish to. Uh, and this would give some protection also if they were trying to move stuff out. So you, you could see more naval battles. Um, but I think at the moment what's happening is, is the Russians are keeping most of their ships out of range. They're not trying to do that much themselves. Um, and un- until ships really start to test the blockade, uh, it'll be hard to know how uh, how intently the, the, the Russians wish to maintain it. That, that's one of the difficult calculations
0: in this case. You've spoken a lot about, uh, or you've referred to the idea that preventing this war from spilling over has always been the main objective of Ukraine's partners, or at least... Uh, nato and so forth uh do you see the, the blockade as being potentially the one area where there could be a flashpoint
3: well there are a number of areas but this is certainly one of them um uh so the, the, the concerns have been that you know russia being pushed in a court into a corner or uh, what happens if the ukrainians go for crimea mm-hmm. um on the one hand, or what happens if the Russians try to interdict supplies coming over land and possibly you know, try and attack targets in Poland and so on. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of thing uh, is less likely now. Uh, it, it's, um, I mean, you know, Putin hasn't even declared this a full war, of, still a limited operation as far as he's concerned. But the, the Black Sea is certainly one area where you could imagine now a contingency mm-hmm where US Navy, Royal Navy ships, uh, whatever, can be um, moving uh, into positions, not inviting an attack by Russian ships, not looking for a fight with the Russian ships, um, but having to be aware of the possibility that such a fight could develop. Uh, They'd be going through international waters and Ukrainian waters, so... um, that the, 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 They won't be trespassing, but but it, it would be seen as a, as a potential area of
0: escalation. Um, certainly, I mean, this week the Secretary of State accused Russia of uh, of holding the world hostage, essentially uh, through this through this blockade. Uh, has this been a tactic? Do, do you see this as a tactic from the Russians to try to force some sort of uh, settlement here? That this this idea of using uh, the blockade as a way to uh, to force others to the table.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it it's. Um, I don't think necessarily that's how it started out. I mean, they, they didn't think the war was going to last this long, um, uh, and in the end, they want the exports too. I mean, if they've taken over the territory, they'll want to move it out, move the move the produce out. But um, I think as as things have turned out, they're now aware that this is. Uh, a potential instrument that they can use to their advantage. Um, and I think they're still trying to work out how they can use it.
0: Canada has spoken this week about sending cargo ships to ports of Romania and other neighbours. Is that is that a solution?
3: Potentially. I mean, other, other Black Sea ports uh, would be important in this. Um, so the, the, the Romania and Bulgaria are uh, uh, two NATO members. Um, who will be involved, obviously Turkey too. I mean, the key thing about anything you might want to do in the Black Sea is you've always got to get there through Turkey. Um, They control it, Uh, they control the Bosphorus. Um, And uh, uh, they haven't let Russian ships go through, for instance. Now, you would think, uh, and it probably would be the case, not just because they're they members, because they can be quite equivocal on that, but because they're also suffering from the high food prices in many countries they pay attention to, like Egypt and so on, are suffering from high food prices, that they would be reasonably supportive uh, of um, of uh, of a move of this sort, uh, uh, and, and obviously you know Canada as a naval power would um, one would expect to see as part of,
0: part of the sort of coalition put together. Uh, Sir Lawrence Friedman, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
2: Pleasure.
0: Well, if it's extra money you need at the pumps these days, if you're driving, it's patience you need when you're heading to the airport. Long delays to clear security and customs continue to frustrate travelers at major Canadian airports, Vancouver, Toronto, elsewhere. Uh, airport authorities, Vancouver specifically today, warning of long waits heading into this holiday weekend. We know there are a lot of issues at hand here. Staffing shortages on the on the uh, clearance side, on the security check side. Attrition during the pandemic. They've had trouble bringing those people back in. More people are traveling. Obviously, rules such as random testing and that arrive can app verification on your way back in. And sure, we're out of practice a bit. The transportation minister was eager to point that out. Uh, last week. Uh, But honestly, I just took an international flight for the first time last month. It had been a while. It was a little bit disorienting, but really it wasn't like trying to figure out how to change the clock on your stove uh, every year, every time we set them forth and, and put them back each twice a year. That's more complicated than going through an airport security check. It did take a few people a few extra seconds, but I can't imagine that us being out of practice is what's causing these massive, long delays at airports. It seems uh, just a bit ridiculous. But uh, anyway, I mean, it is slowing things down a little bit. Uh, Meantime, Canada's transport minister, the same, says the federal government is doing what it can to fix the problems. Here's Omar al we're seeing that the surge
4: for demand to travel is putting a lot of pressure on our airports, on our
1: uh, security s- system. We are making sure that we increase resources. We're working with airports. We're working with airlines to address this issue.
0: The one thing that uh, that is a little bit surprising is they must have seen this coming. I mean, It's true that for a long time there, we thought things might come back slowly. We weren't sure whether there would be new waves. Omicron certainly set everything back. But once that started to pass, you would think that right across the board, people would have understood that there was going to be a rush to travel again and a rush to the airports and to make sure that we were ready, maybe even overcompensate so that there would be maybe even quicker than you would used to before the pandemic. But no, instead we've had many long waits. Well, my next guest says... There are indeed many factors at play, but there are some issues that could be solved quickly if only Canada followed the examples of some other places. Joining me now is Duncan D. He's a former chief operating officer at Air Canada and a member of the panel appointed to review the Canada Transportation Act back in 2016. Duncan D, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Ben.
0: You've had uh, you flew today. Um, you've had some personal experiences with flying over the last while. Uh, how have you just found, how have you found it? Because I understand for you this is this is uh, an issue born of born of personal experience.
4: You know, Ben, it is uh, an issue born out of personal experience. Uh, my my first experience with what's going on right now was actually in early April. But I'm happy to report that today the trip was relatively smooth. Um, but the plus side of that is uh, my itinerary today meant that I could avoid most of the bottlenecks. Um, you know, I cleared uh, security in uh, Moncton, New Brunswick, which is a relatively small airport where the lines were manageable. Uh, and uh, the immigration I saw today was uh, US immigration in Montreal and not uh, Canadian immigration. And there again, the lines, it was very heavy but uh the officers were clearing customers in a very normal and uh, routine way.
0: But you did hear anecdotally from your uh, from your seatmate that things mightn't be quite as easy coming through Montreal itself.
4: Yeah, my seatmate actually um was um chatting with me as as uh, uh tra- fellow travelers tend to do um when he saw me um at the uh, gate waiting to board the flight and uh uh I he, I asked him, so how was, how, how was it uh, today? And he said that he had shown up at the airport two hours before his uh, the departure and he barely made it, which was actually true because uh, they were calling uh, the boarding process uh, just as uh, he walked up to the gate.
0: So from your perspective, what is the problem? I realize it's a bit of a perfect storm uh, in many ways, but what are you seeing here from all your experience? What are you seeing as the root causes of these big delays that that we're witnessing at airports, many big airports in this country?
4: Ben, I think you're right in describing it as a perfect storm, but in some ways it's also an imperfect storm. Um, some of it is a self-inflicted storm, um, and some of it are long-standing self-inflicted storms. Mm-hmm. So what we've got in Canada are bottlenecks on the outbound, meaning people leaving uh, their the, the, the places they're flying from, uh, where they're encountering uh, huge queues at primarily Toronto, but also in Montreal and Vancouver, Uh, For uh, security clearance. So what they're encountering, uh, when they try to leave, um, they they check in on time, they drop their bags on time, and they look up and there's a, at times three to four hour queue just to get through security, uh, which is which is extremely difficult to manage because the rules say that you can check in for a domestic flight 45 minutes before it departs or an international transborder flight 60 minutes before it departs. So a three or four hour line basically means you're missing your flight. Um, And then on the inbound, if anybody has traveled internationally, the delays are even more uh, dramatic uh, because what's happened is people aren't even able to get off the plane, Uh, What's happened primarily in Toronto again, but uh, there are some uh, reports elsewhere, but primarily in Toronto, somebody coming in from a foreign destination waiting for their um, uh, flight uh, to actually get to the gate can have a wait of upwards of two hours. And when they uh, they're only allowed to get off the plane 50 at a time. So you can just imagine on some of these large aircraft with upwards of 200, 250 passengers, that can take quite a long time, uh, quite a long process. And again, when you're talking about uh, travelers, they're not, not all of them are, 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 are ending their trip in Toronto. A good chunk of them, up to half, maybe even more of some of these uh, flights will carry connections beyond Toronto. So most of these people would be missing their flights. They're going to have to make other arrangements to get home.
0: So Duncan, clear this up for me because we see a lot of passing the buck on this one. And, and I imagine not all of it is unjustified. I mean, there is a worker shortage. We know that. Uh, airports appear to be stuck as well to some extent with that. Uh, the government's blaming Travelers, other people, uh, labor shortages. But what do you see here? Where is the where is the problem? Or at least, what are the quick fixes here? We know we can't hire a ton of people really fast, uh, but it feels like something needs to be done.
4: I think a lot. I, you know, as somebody who's traveled internationally in the last little while, um, I think uh, it's it's quite uh, uh, safe to say that this is not a Canadian, uniquely Canadian phenomenon in terms of the rush to return to travel just people, uh, by the very nature of what's happened in the last uh, couple of years are really eager to, to get, to hit the skies, to, to, you know, to take a flight somewhere, anywhere to, to experience a, 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 a return to some degree of normalcy. So yeah, there is that, that is taking place. What makes Canada so different and why the situation in Canada is so much worse than anywhere I've traveled in the last, uh, Two months, whether it's the United States or several points in Europe, is Canada has stubbornly clung to some policies and procedures which are, in the case of the pandemic procedures, either have been dropped by other our peer countries, or they've taken practices from 9/11 and they've just never evolved uh, from that. And if you, um, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, I worked on as part of the 2016 uh, Canada Transportation Act review. Um, was, in fact, looking at the operations of the um, uh, air security agency in Canada. They're called CATSA. Mm -hmm. And when you benchmark them against many of the world peers, they have stubbornly refused to do many things that many of these agencies have done, which is use data and technology to speed up the process of getting through airport security. You know, they've got a lot of fancy new equipment, but they are not using much of that equipment to the full capability of getting people as quickly through security as possible.
0: So how might that be improved?
4: I think that the, on the inbound side, on, on the folks arriving from international destinations, one of the things that uh, would be a, a rapid and immediate quick fix is to simply end the pandemic uh, inspection requirements. So as of now, Um, In fact, it's just increased today. But as of now, it's taking three to four times longer for Canada Customs and Immigration to process each customer, each traveler. So, you know, taking four times longer doesn't just mean an extra minute or two here and there. When you multiply that by the number of travelers that are coming through Canada Customs on any given day, but airports have basically said that none, none of the airports in the country are designed for that type of bottleneck. There just simply is not enough space, which is the reason why you've got air aircraft being held off the terminal gates while they wait for their turn to come in to, to drop off customers at Canada Customs. And even then, they're only allowed to drop off 50 customers at a time. So on the inbound side, a very quick and easy, immediate fix would be just to drop some of these Things Like verification of the vaccination status of a of a traveler, or you know the random testing that's done you know up to four thousand tests a day are, are undertaken when most of the testing that 's happening in the community is no longer happening, but you know for travelers there's this desire by the federal government to continue testing them randomly, so when you 've got four thousand of them being tested every day, that 's a huge bottleneck. So removing that would be a quick fix. I've got to simply say, though, that the Canada Border Services Agency, up until the pandemic, has been one of the world's leading agencies in terms of using data and technology to speed up the process at the borders. So this is not a criticism of them or their people. Uh, What it is, is the federal government stubbornly trying to continue imposing conditions of travel, which the U.S. no longer does, the U.K. and the EU no longer do. Many other countries have simply dropped. And they're not able to deliver the service that Canadians, Canadian travellers have paid for at the border in an efficient or timely way.
0: I'm speaking with Duncan D. He's a former chief operating officer at Air Canada, a member of the panel appointed to review the Canada Transportation Act in 2016. We've been talking about just some of the root causes of these huge lineups we've been seeing uh, at airports, uh, specifically in Toronto, but also in Vancouver and Montreal. And what can be done to try to fix it? We know there's a labour shortage. We know that uh, screeners, for instance, are having trouble uh, bringing enough staff in, that the delays coming through customs has been uh, much longer than usual. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about some of the quick fixes and also some of the uh, some of the uh, solutions that have been proposed, such as perhaps uh, there were talk there was talk of maybe reducing flights, that can't be a good thing, and we'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Duncan D, former Chief Operating Officer at Air Canada, a member of the panel appointed to review the Canada Transportation Act in 2016. We've been talking about just the root causes of these huge delays we've been seeing at airports, especially since more and more people are going back to travel. We still have lots of uh, lots of requirements in place around around the pandemic and so forth, uh, and uh, screening too. Screening is slowed down. Uh, Duncan, I, I'm curious to know what you made of, sort of some of the some of the reasons we've heard so far uh, the minister omar al-gabra uh, last week sort of suggesting that maybe travelers were out of practice and delaying things i guess that's at the screening side but uh, but but you think the the, the problems are, are, are deeper than that and maybe by reducing some of these rules now at least in terms of verifying um the the, the uh, arrive can app for instance uh, when you're coming in that some of those could be done away with are you concerned at all about about removing that layer of protection or is the layer of protection already there if we just Did, you know, analyze the data differently?
4: No, I think that's absolutely, look, I think uh, the minister, um, what what it certainly sounded to me would be like a hospital blaming uh, too many sick people for showing up. You know, it, it was the most tone deaf uh, response I'd ever heard from a minister. But the excuses are starting to run into each other. So last week, he, um, the minister seemed to be intent on blaming travellers, or he called them out of practice travellers. Well, you know, if he's worried about out of practice travellers, he can wait another three or four weeks when the real out of practice travellers show up at the airports. And those are the families who are going to be taken to the skies for their first vacation since the start of the pandemic. You know, a lot of these families have young kids who don't travel very frequently. So if he's worried about so-called out-of-practice travelers, he just has to wait three to four weeks before they really show up. But one of the things that was quite um, amusing but uh, depressing at the same time was uh, you had the CEO of uh, Katza coming out and saying that he's short-staffed. And on the same day in the same news story you had the minister coming out and saying well no Katza is not short-staffed in fact they're staffed at 90 percent of their pre-pandemic staffing levels while air traffic is down below 70 percent of its pre-pandemic levels so you can't really have it both ways and so i think last week he was blaming the minister was blaming uh, travelers this week he's now on the bandwagon about uh, not enough staff um, well, you know, if you just do the simple math, if you've got 90% of your pre-pandemic staffing and you're only processing less than 70% of travelers, you've in fact got more workers processing fewer travelers than you ever have, you ever had. And so, you know, enough with the excuses is really what I think travelers, Canadian travelers um, uh, would want to say to the minister if they had the chance. It really is about just get on with it. Let's just fix this problem so that I can get on my holiday with my family that I've been planning for the last couple of years.
0: As you mentioned, we haven't even really hit busy season yet, have we?
4: This is the absolute worst time to be experiencing queues at the airport at any in, in any other normal year. You know, May, other than the... Victoria Day long weekend is not a particularly heavy travel month. And, you know, when you're talking about the type of traveler, May tends to be generally business travelers who are more experienced. So none of those business travelers are particularly out of practice, like the minister would like to think. So, you know, if things don't improve into the next three, four or five weeks, it's going to be it'll, it'll be gangbusters at the airports uh, uh, for the summer.
0: And the really quick fix is, if I, if I get this right, the really quick fix is you've been looking at is, is, is as the uh, airport association's been calling for, is drop the COVID-19 testing uh, coming in. We've been seeing fewer results and try and speed up the, the verification of the Arrive Can app at least.
4: There There's that on the inbound side. On the outbound side, I would just suggest to Katza that it would be nice if they were consistent. Um, you know, one of the things that I experienced, which I now have confirmed has been experienced at multiple airports in the country is for 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 the last twenty years that cats has been in, in existence they've never enforced this the, this rule mm-hmm. but now they seem to want all travelers to have officially branded and approved catSA uh, uh, plastic bags in which to put their liquids in so mm-hmm. the ziploc bags that you and I and most travelers bring from home for some strange reason, cats has stopped accepting them when people traveled, and they're now saying, well, no, you have to use the ones we have here at the counter. And so you have all of these people fumbling with their liquids and gels, trying to get them into the bag that cats is providing them. Sure, that only adds 45 seconds, 50 seconds, but you multiply that by the number of travelers and you've got a mess on your hands. The other thing is, um, with the resources they've got in hand, start doing things like what other agencies around the world have done, which is take pre-vetted low-risk travelers and expedite their security. Number one, stop screening airline crews, pilots and flight attendants operating the flights, just like you screen regular travelers. Did you know that the pilot... Operating your flight, that the flight attendants operating your flight have to go through security just like ordinary travelers do, right. and they forget that these these pilots and flight attendants have been pre vetted. They've they've had their backgrounds checked over and over and over again, and in a, in effect, these are the safe the, the folks that you've entrusted your lives to to operate those flights safely. When when you take the pre-vetted travelers out of the mix. When you take the air crews out of the mix, you suddenly have more resources to devote to the regular travelers.
0: Duncan D, thank you so much for your insight tonight. I appreciate it.
4: Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it.